Hello. Hello. And welcome to Plants and Pipettes, the podcast with me, Joram, and... <laughs> me, Tegan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Hi. The, it's now, what, 59 episodes in, and that just is sounding more and more awkward. <laughs> yeah. We, like others, they, they sort of find their groove and have literally the same introduction recorded like 200 times in a row and we sort of disintegrate more and more hello and welcome to plants and pipettes a podcast where we talk about plants and, and pipettes. also pipettes dun, dun, dun. <laughs> and i mean we could do something like that but i think um i i think nobody would benefit from that how have you been uh, I'm just like tired. I was, I was literally just trying to think of what I've done in the last week to recount my delightful tales of frolicking, but I have done no frolicking. I have, um, I've been so exhausted, honestly, um, coming off a couple of rough, like Corona coaster emotional weeks and like feeling a bit better now, but just, I'm just exhausted by everything. Like I'm kind of dragging myself out of bed, <laughs> doing my work and then flopping and yeah, it's hard. Coronavirus sucks. Isolation sucks sometimes. Yeah, yeah. I also, I'm also like on very low energy the entire time, and I literally opened up my calendar to figure out what I have been doing in the last since we last spoke. <laughs> it's really not much. Um, so yeah, maybe we could cut this part of the, the show short. I, I think there's just one thing um, where I want to share our excitement that uh, I felt today when you told me exciting news, which is not really news because it happened a month ago, um, but we only discovered now, and it to us it's sort of. Um, yeah, to me it was very exciting. <laughs> and the thing it's that happened is... Olds, news, olds, yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, the thing that happened is that we were mentioned by, by Nature Plants um, in an editorial and we were mentioned along a couple of other people. It was about like um, people who are doing science communication on Twitter and also interesting science-related podcasts. And we were mentioned twice in that uh, editorial and it was just so very exciting because, yeah, Nature Plants is up there at, as sort of the the big ones the big journals that um in the plant field and the, like the other sections of nature like there are the journals that almost everybody reads but i mean you know if the plant cell or the plant journal pnas if any of you guys want to mention us we're i mean yeah absolutely like let's not make nature plants the pinnacle of what we're achieving i, I want to go for the full set now I, <laughs> I i taste the blood there and now i want to be featured by all of them um to have my own little collection like i as i'm out of the lab i might never publish with any of these um but sorry i just i just completely lost <laughs> i lost all my attention because you said i tasted blood and i just started flashing into rocky horror picture show <laughs> songs and I, I was like what is happening something's like this song just invaded in my my head <laughs> Um, no. Sorry, yeah. I want. To, I just want to have the full set of all the major journals mentioning us and and saying how great we are. Um, instead of um, because I I will never have papers published with all of them because yeah, I'm not publishing like, I anything. Was published, I was now published in in Nature Plants, yeah. <laughs> and then like small disclaimer, um, not actually <laughs> linked to from an editorial article. But still, I was very excited, and uh, I had my sleeping son on my on my arm, and so I had to be very quiet but very excited. Um, so yeah, that mm. was my my big event of the last week, which only happened today. So that was really and cool. some of you probably know that I do work as a science editor now, but I do not work for Nature Plants plants and yeah. i did not write that editorial so it was not just blatant <laughs> me writing about myself in case anybody is um playing at home <laughs> yeah, but it was that's, nice. that's, a, that's a very good point 
Um, cool. Then um, I think if if our lives apart from that are very boring, then I think we can directly jump into our first segment this week. My favorite plant. And this week it's me. Um, I had to look up a favorite plant and uh, I found... Alyssum murale or murale, murale, um, is that a plant that has ever crossed your path? I, like, it's unlikely, but I want to... No, it's alyssum. Alyssum. Um, I, mean, I couldn't even guess what type of plant it is, honestly. Yeah, I, I, it is a, a type of grass and it's a native, I think it was, I don't know if it was first described, but mostly described from Italy, but it's generally um, located to southeastern Europe. Um, and the interesting thing about Alyssa Murali is that it's a nickel hyperaccumulator. Mm-hmm. So this is a is a grass that can take up to 30 milligrams per gram of dry leaf of nickel. Um, which is a fairly big amount. Um, I think it's one of the plant, like the plants with the highest known amount of nickel that it can accumulate in its biomass, and therefore it can be. Um, or people are discussing its use f- uh, as a tool for phyto mining. So you? wait, why do we want nickel? Um, nickel is a very important element, for example, for batteries, uh, for battery production, for steel manufacturing. Um, uh, like stainless steel is mixed with uh, it's a ferrum uh, iron mixed with nickel to make it stainless. Uh, so presumably, it's it's fairly common then. It's kind of hanging around in the soil that it can get taken up by plants. Yeah, I I, I haven't looked up how common it is, but um, the interesting thing about this plant is that it can take up, even from fairly low concentrations of nickel in the soil, it can then concentrate it within its its leaves and its biomass. Uh, And that's why it's interesting as a tool for phytomining because then it means that um, the yeah, you can grow the plants in areas where you couldn't traditionally mine the area but you can just plant these plants, let them grow for a season, and then harvest the, the biomass, burn the whole plant, and then in the ashes you have then the nickel that you can then extract from it. Um, and th- that's Is that better than the type of mining where we dig things? Probably. Maybe yes? It has less... It, it, it creates... like All the carbon that's released is the carbon that has been captured before by the plant, so mm. in that respect it's carbon neutral. I mean, it's still emitting carbon to the atmosphere, but Carbon but you're going into like some fixed. sort of ecosystem and throwing a whole lot of foreign plant seeds, presumably, on the ground, and that's exactly making that's, that's one it of an the Italian issues. plant monoculture. You what you avoid are some of the uh, toxic runoffs you get from traditional mining. You very often have an issue with um, contaminating the groundwater when you have an open mine, uh, mm-hmm. which is the way that nickel is usually mined. Uh, and I found this story um, about mining and this plant, uh, Alyssa Murali, in a BBC article in the BBC... Uh, it's called the, the BBC Future Planet is a section of it. Um, and there they talk about um, the quest for of researchers to in Indonesia, which is one of the largest nickel producers in the world, to find plants there 
that uh, are nickel hyperaccumulators because because the the soil there is fairly rich in nickel. Um, there are actually quite a couple of plants who manage to accumulate that and probably as a sort of detoxifying um, mechanism so that they know where the nickel is by sort of taking it and putting it in a safe place in a vacuole so it can't um, affect other parts of the cellular me metabolism because mm -hmm. nickel and some other metals that are important in plant enzymes um, but higher concentrations are usually toxic like m not many plants can survive this but the fact that on a nickel rich soil you have a lot of plants growing means that they have to have some way of dealing with it um and yeah, that's actually an interesting read here. And you can also see a couple of pictures, not exactly from the alyssum um, plant, but from other plants there. Yeah. Can you explain to me what I'm seeing? I'm seeing something that looks like kind of green goo. Why Why is that green goo? Because the when the nickel is in this um, iron, ionized form, like soluble in, in water, then this gives this like tur turquoise, blue, greenish color. Um, to the liquid and also to the plant parts. And this is actually uh, a first way that researchers use to screen for plants that might accumulate nickel is by just looking at the color. And then they developed a quick test where they have um, a filter disc. And unfortunately, they don't say what it's impregnated with, but it has a chemical that reacts with nickel and then the disc turns pink. And so they can sort of scratch a bit, like wound the tree or the plant and then press this disc on it. And if nickel is in there, then the thing turns pink. And then they can um, do further analysis to actually quantify it because this this disc is just a yes no um, mm -hmm. uh, analysis uh, and then they actually want to know how much there is and uh, often it's only in the range to like one to three um, micrograms uh, per gram of dried leaf uh, but um, yeah, with these uh, uh, milligrams, to, to, um, two to three or one to three milligrams. But this plant from Italy is like 10 times better at accumulating nickel. And that's why they're thinking of actually introducing that plant in a pilot dun, dun, project. Dun. And that is where <laughs> it becomes like questionable. critical. Yeah, questionable. Um, so can they also use these plants as a sort of sensor to find out where there are nickel deposits? I mean, you said that it can take it from the soil and you can I, then collect it, but could you tell how much nickel there is based on how much nickel is in the plant or is that not going to work? I I don't know. They don't go into that. And I know that you have a story on hand about like plants sensing metals and then people deciding to mine these places, right? Uh, yeah, I think I've told that before. There's like a, a kind of famous Australian story of um, a surveyor who was buying property based on when he saw a certain species of plant grow because he noticed that these plants grow where there was um, strong iron ore deposits. And I guess... Um, his family is now one of the richest families in Australia and are digging up our country for profit. So well done. Yeah. Thank you. She plants. Said <laughs> thank you. Plants. It's not the plant's uh, fault. Yeah. Capitalism's um, fault. But they actually say that um, finding native plants that are very high in nickel accumulation could help to um, have um, an eco-friendly agriculture happening where planting or like cultivating these native uh, nickel hyperaccumulators could actually help uh, sort of um, indigenous tribes or other people living in close proximity to the rainforests to 
gain like get, get some value from the land without destroying the ecosystem by just specifically picking these hyper accumulators burning them extracting a nickel from the ashes and then making a profit off of that um i mean it's still quite quite early when it comes to that because um the the yields aren't um aren't great like i one number in the text is that it's around like one and a half thousand pounds per hectare that you can get from one of the best um, accumulating plants but it's mm. still um if we think about cutting down traditional mining this could be a, a, a way to to make up for that and it, it means that we need more more land that we have to grow more of these plants and we have to see how we can do that in a sustainable way but at the same time um it might be less energy intensive because we don't have to like crush through the earth to extract the the, the ores containing the nickel we don't have like toxic I mean, runoffs and, and things like that i'm a little bit i mean i'm, I'm quite skeptical but like the this is a grass, so presumably it doesn't have the world's deepest roots. I mean, that's no, not going to be even nearly comparable to what you can get when you just cut a huge slice out of the earth and pro- like the yeah. like depth wise. I mean, the whole point of open cut mining is you just go deep and you just get everything there is there and you screw everything up yeah. and then you kind of fill it in, pat it down, and like say it's okay again. Yeah, no, it's it's, it's absolutely right. Like it's right now in no way um comparable in the amounts that you can harvest from it like you get in the range of like kilograms from like a hectare when you get tons from open pit mining Hmm. um so it's um it's clear that it's it's not exactly replacing mining but it can be used for example in places where it's nearby a mine and you have sort of you mine at the hotspot of the nickel where you have the highest concentrations Hmm. and at a certain concentration of nickel in the soil, it doesn't become economical anymore to mine it, but it could still be economical to just have plants growing there and going in there once a year to collect them and then have them regrow again the next year. It's like a much slower process with lower yields, but it's better than just stopping mining and um, then having no yield at all anymore. And also the other thing that Wait, I want sorry, to mention... Something is better than stopping mining? Is that your argument now? <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I'm making a, uh, making here a point of exploiting the earth for for minerals, um, and mm. that is that in itself is is problematic. Um, but one no, last I mean, good is- thing I want to mention about these hyper accumulators is that the fact that they're taking the the, the usually the, the metal ions from the soil in this case nickel means that they are not in the soil anymore and that can detoxify places in a way that other plants can come in then, um, or that you can use it for a traditional agriculture where before all your crops you would grow on there would be contaminated um, and now you can sort of gain more land without cutting down forests um, because maybe this is an area that anyway is sort of toxic to plants already and then you just like mine phytomine the nickel and then after i don't know a couple of decades you have ex- like ex- extracted all the nickel from the topsoil there and then you can start um, agriculture yeah, or reforestation or something else that wasn't possible before. And you're right. I mean, this is this is a nickel-specific example, but there are different ideas of this kind of phytoremediation using different plants, which might be able to take like other heavy metals or, or something toxic or poisonous and do this. Yep. I mean, this has been discussed a lot. I'm not sure if anybody's actually doing it very much in practice. I'm not sure how... 
Whenever I look into it, I only find like pilot projects. I never found anybody doing it, but maybe I yeah. I wasn't lucky with finding it yet. But yeah, most of the time it's like pilot projects, early research or some something in development. I swear I also once saw like years and years ago a paper that discussed the ability like using seeds to detect where there might have been landmines. Like this plant would have some sort of color change or some sort mm -hmm. of visual indicator depending. And I, I can't remember. I mean, this must have been 10 years ago that I saw this. And I'm like, that is such a cool idea. Imagine just like sprinkling seeds everywhere and then yeah being i remember able to, yeah. that it was uh, i think basically on on the metal or, th or something if it would grow next to the metal it would then change the color of the, the flowers mm -hmm. or something along these lines that, i remember yeah. that but also not much more than that yeah, vague recollections this is this is what we're bringing to you on the plant <laughs> Bats podcast it's not it's not great science but there's kind of an idea of science that we we might have dreamt about one day plants like, has vague <laughs> recollections of plant science <laughs> i mean you and i worked together for a long time so it's possible that we had some sort of shared like trauma-induced hallucination during our phds <laughs> and this is where this has come from but Remember that one day I dropped a methanol bottle and all the windows and doors were closed? It was a, it was a good day, Yoram, a good it, day. It must have been that day. <laughs> um, anyway, so this, you said it was a um, publication in BBC, a, a, a um, article. Yeah. Who was it by? Shout out to the author. It's an article by Dina Rokmia Ningsi. Uh, published on uh, BBC Future Planet and something I also wanted to mention when we talk about the BBC Future Planet is something I haven't seen before uh, in many places is that there's a short paragraph in the end it just says the emissions from travel it took to report the stories were zero kilograms of CO2 so presumably they didn't travel <laughs> to report the story the digital emissions from this story are an estimated 1.2 to 3.6 grams CO2 per page view so by me opening this page twice today I already contributed between 2.4 and uh, 7.2 grams of co2 um, but i find it interesting that they mentioned that there to to raise the mm. awareness that using digital infrastructure uh, and reporting on stories contributes to co2 to much uh, a much lower degree than mining but um uh, yeah that's I found that interesting. I think I will check Future Planet from um, from time to time now from the BBC because I, I, I wasn't aware of this. I didn't know that this existed. No, me neither. And it looks it looks really cool. I mean, their purpose is to kind of look at issues of sustainability and um, yeah, yeah, conservation and stuff by the looks of it. Yeah, cool they have a couple stories. of interesting stories there. It looks nicely presented, and it's like yeah, sometimes like I found a story interesting, but then I discovered the whole thing around and was quite happy. So shout out to this tiny little um, like communication project <laughs> called the BBC. We don't know if you've heard about it yet, but um, your arm at Plants of the Pants can really recommend that. Diversity in the plants. Science. Yeah. So um, you know how I mentioned that I spent the week basically lying on my face um, and being very exhausted. That also extended to the fact that I didn't do my own homework. My mother did my homework for me when it comes to diversity. Yarm is shaking his head at me in disappointment. Um, so about <laughs> jealousy. Like my mother didn't do my homework and I'm, I'm sad. Maybe my mother, like communicate with my mother more and she can maybe help you did, out sometimes. Did we, did we uncover something here now? Is that how you went through university as well, Tegan? <laughs> yeah, she wrote my thesis. She, no, it didn't happen. Please don't take my job away from me. Um, I need to eat. Um, <laughs> she's a software engineer, but she does have a very strong um, interest in feminism, particularly in um, female education. So her um, her PhD is actually on sort of education methods and and. Hmm relation to software engineering and women in software engineering. Um, anyway, <laughs> that was <laughs> not very related. Um, 
I am talking today about Anna Atkins, who was called Anna Children at birth and then married into the Atkins family. Um, she was born in 1871 and she's an English botanist. Um, but what's cool is that she's not just a botanist, she's also a photographer and she was the first person to publish a book that was illustrated with photography, not with drawn pictures. And some people also say that she was the first woman to actually make a photograph, although mm. there's some debate about that. Um, so just a little bit of background on her. She was born in 1799, way back when, in England, and her mother died in childbirth and her father had no other children. And I think these two facts actually might have helped towards her education because her father was um, John George Children and he was a scientist, um, a chemist, a mineralogist and a zoologist, but he also believed in her being educated. And I kind of wonder if the mother was still around or if he'd had other like male children, if that wouldn't have worked out in her favor so well, because obviously educating women was not super in trend in those times, um, in the early 1800s. Um, so from already at quite an early stage, she was illustrating some of the books um, that her father was working on. So he was doing translation and she was doing engravings to do the illustrations um, for this based on kind of botanical images. Um, and then later on in life, she grew up, got married to another John. Apparently everybody was called John in those days. Um, but she, both her father and her husband were friends with a guy called William Henry Fox Talbot. And you might've heard of this guy before, probably Yoram has because he loves photography, but he's kind of like, he's not the inventor of photography. He didn't invent the first photographical process and he also didn't invent the first public one, but he kind of made the first easy enough to use photographic methods that they became publicly available and you know he's kind of one of these father figures in that field I would say mm -hmm. that's right yeah I, I don't remember the details of what he was uh, what he did invent but I remember that he was one of the pioneers of photography that's the word and, pioneer yeah so that's also where the debate comes in about whether she was the first woman to um, make a photo take a photograph because she was friends with this guy but he also had a wife and some say you know it might be his wife who took the first photograph and I, i'm probably i'm willing to bet that his wife got dibs on taking the first photograph yeah, yeah before she was, this random friend of the family did but yeah probably anna atkins was one of the first that had the like conserved proof um of of taking a, a photograph and i mean we often have that in history right like we have the first person who is documented but it doesn't mean that they were literally the first person mm. who, have, who had, i think actually they have that. evidence from constant who is the constant who's the wife as well it's just um you know there's not a date on the photograph right yeah. so who knows and everybody has now died so <laughs> they can't argue about it um so they had that great um friend so her father, John George Children, was helpful in getting her, like, kind of educating and supporting her interest in, in bot botany and also the photography. They had the family friend, John Pelly Atkins. No, that was the husband, John Pelly Atkins. And then they had another family friend, John Herschel. Um, and John Herschel invented cyanotyping, which is a different kind of um, photographic process. And it's I might something have you did, right? Exactly. Um, yeah, I might have talked a bit about cyanotyping before on um, Plants and Pipettes because I got into it a few months back at the start of lockdown. And it's basically this method where you have two solutions. Um, one of them is potassium ferricyanide and the other one is ferric ammonium citrate. And then you mix them together. So they kind of like 
mostly clear and colourless, maybe a little bit pale green colour um, when you mix them, but not a strong colour. Mix them together, put them in the sun. And at this point, there's a chemical reaction where the UV light from the sun um, causes the citrate from the ferric ammonium citrate to reduce the iron 3, so um, a type of... Um, uh, how do um, I say that, Yarm? It's a, it's a metal iron, and um, some metal ions can have different charges and then difficult physical properties and different physical po- properties. And this one, iron 3, has different properties from iron 2. And I guess this one changes it from 3 to 2? Yep, it goes from 3 to 2, and then that also reacts with ferrocyanide. And in any case, the result is something called ferric ferrocyanide. And that, unlike the other things, is dark blue and insoluble. So now you've got something that's not going to wash out again. Um, so it basically turns it, the, the UV light from the sun turns something a darker color blue and sort of makes it stay there. Um, can't be washed away. And this is really cool because if you think about just putting your hands in front of the sun, or in this case, putting a plant over um, the sunlight, you end up with this kind of contrasting shadow image where whatever you protect has a kind of white look and whatever gets the UV lights becomes this really deep, beautiful blue. And yeah. I would encourage you guys to go and Google image these um, things because we'll put a link in, in the show notes, but they're, they're really, really beautiful, um, how, how it turns out. So... The, the third John in her life, I guess, Father John, Husband John, and now Friend John, introduced her to cyanotyping, and based on that, within a year of him kind of inventing it, she was like fully into it, and she had started applying it to mostly algae, sort of seaweeds, um, and making these photograms where you could see the outline of the seaweed, and these, these are really stunning. These are just pieces of art, and they're, they're insanely beautiful. So imagine kind of a white, um, intricate seaweed leafing, um, I'm using the leaf, the word leaf a bit wrong there, but, you know, leaf-like <laughs> structures um, on a very deep blue background. Yeah, it's, it's really cool. And, yeah, as you said, they're like photograms. They're not exactly photographs, so they were mm-hmm. just sort of put on the sensitive surface, maybe, like, even squished with a glass plate and then um, exposed, um, which is also a cool science experiment you can do. Like, you can buy the, the cyano, uh, cyanotype solutions. You can also buy, like, photographic paper, and develop that yourself. There's also like slow acting ones because usually the ones are the ones actually used for photo- uh, photographs are quite fast acting. And so if you put them out in the sun, they will all be black. But there's some slower ones, so it's a cool science experiment to do um, to yeah document and visualize leaf structures. Yeah, so that's I, really cool. That, that's really nice about the cyanotyping. It it takes a little while to kind of set. So, I'm not sure about yeah. toxicity. How how appropriate this is for younger children, but I think for older children, it's it's pretty okay. And for people think, like myself, it was very fun. It was a nice way to spend a day. I think for very young children, you can do. Um, a different approach which achieves a similar thing is what we used to do we would put down leaves and then we would spray just like watercolor on them and then you would have this negative imprint of the mm. leaves on the paper um, so that is a very safe way to achieve something that's conceptually similar even though the cyanotypes with like the intricate details that you can see are very very cool so that was yeah. our little DIY section, uh, worked <laughs> into the diversity section there. But yeah, but just to finish quickly off, so this book, um, there's photographs of British um, algae, cyanotype impressions. Um, this is this, this first book with um, illustrated photographic images. And if you, if you image search for that, that's where you see the really, really beautiful um, images. 
Um, later in life, Anna Atkins also published some fictional novels. One of them is called The Perils of Fashion. I really want to read that. That just sounds charming as hell. Um, and then later on in life, she also got into ferns and she started collecting ferns and algae. And when um, she either got older or passed away, I'm not sure which one, her collection became was donated to the British Museum. Um, so yeah, go and check her out. We'll put some links in there. And if you have some free time, you can buy like these cyanotyping kits very easily online. So yeah, try that. It's super fun. Yeah. Let's talk, talk, talk about bias, bias, bias. And uh, now that's it's my turn. Um, talking about cognitive biases, um, and today I wrote a Semmelweis reflex. Wait, I hope we didn't talk about this before because it sounds similar to some things that we talked before, but I searched and couldn't find any notion of it. So I guess this is new to you, me, and our listeners. Um, the Semmelweis reflex is based on a Hungarian physician called Ignaz Semmelweis. And um, maybe you've heard of it. It's this observation that he had when he was working in a hospital. Um, yeah, he's, he, he was a physician. And he noticed that whenever the doctors who performed routine autopsies on deceased people, they would then go to their next case, and that would be a pregnant woman, um, there was a high chance of the pregnant woman dying. Uh, uh. And he observed that for a while and made the connection there and then introduced a chlorine solution to wash your hands before that. And the interesting thing about this was that it was 20 years before the germ theory was proposed. So this was 20 years before we had an idea about microbes being the reason for us getting sick or for transmitting disease. So there was, um, he called them sort of like um, corpse particles. Uh, I think he had a Latin Latin name for that. (laughs) Um, Mm -hmm. But sort of he had a, a rough concept for the idea that something is transmitted from the the dead people to the living people um, but did he kind the of think it of was the doctors did he think it was more sort of a spiritual thing like it was bad energy coming from death or did he like i mean yeah he kind of he couldn't have understood microbes so he must have yeah and also like the the exact diseases right he could only know that they sort of they're bringing the death from the morgue to mm. um the the pregnancy ward um, that must have been so terrifying yeah, like if you're the one who realizes that and you sees that somebody's bringing like carrying death with them no you know what's terrifying introducing a chlorine solution for them to wash their hands and them refusing to do it because it would go against current knowledge um mm. because the thing that they said is that a gentleman's hand is unable to transmit disease and therefore they don't need to wash their hands <laughs> did and they use that exact that yeah, like definition i i i took that from i think from a, a wikipedia page it was like one of the criti- criticisms that he was met with and yeah people didn't really adopt this for a long time I, I want to interject these are probably the same people who believe that like women who were on their period could rot ham or like would make flowers <laughs> wilt they probably had this like they're like oh, but a gentleman's hand you know obviously a woman like yeah everything dies it must have yeah <laughs> it was exactly the same mindset um and also uh, although as uh, according to the Wikipedia article, um, I think he managed to have some people adopt this, but it was only with the advent of the German theory 20 years later, um, I think already when um, Semmelweis was dead, that 
people started systematically using disinfection as a tool mm. to avoid the spread of diseases from one patient to the other or from the morgue to the patients. Um, and so it's this Semmelweis reflex is on one hand um, an indicator, indicator for this cognitive bias of having something that goes against our current knowledge that we have an inherent... Um, inhibition to follow the new evidence or to follow mm -hmm. the new knowledge um, because we have the old thing we want to stick to the old thing and the old thing was that gentlemen's they can't spread disease so why should they follow the weird new guy with his chlorine solution um and i mean honestly like he was walking around smelling like chlorine like smelling like he'd just been like to a public pool there's something weird about that like It's not it's not ununderstandable. Like And I can also imagine that probably the chlorine solution wasn't great on the skin and so oh, on no. so that they would have like they would get rough skin from it and then they would have to make up a reason why they don't have want to, to like, continue doing that. Go in the and harpoon a whale just so you can soften your hands with <laughs> whale blubber again. <laughs> something like that. Yeah. Um and in in pop culture this is something that sometimes uh, is referenced as this idea of somebody having the right idea and being misunderstood by his peers and then like some time after his death without him ever knowing um that that people um, adopted his idea and followed mm. his idea there's like a german rap song that's actually called the semmelweis reflex that talks about that idea um and there's also some other mentions in popular culture um of this concept um mm. so yeah that's i haven't heard of it honestly Yeah, uh, it's, I think it's not that, like, that often we have other cognitive biases that are more sort of in the public attention. Um, that must, but, uh, like, just, w wouldn't you have, I mean, it's, it's sad because people were dying, um, but wouldn't you just have loved to be the one sitting there kind of like, you don't have to say I told you so, you just have to kind of, like, knowingly look at people, just like. Yeah. And then, like, casually pour your chlorine on your hands and, like, <laughs> waft it around the air a little bit. I mean, it's, it's still something something that we have the problem with today, right? And don't, don't even mean the corona crisis. Um, there are these like um, MSRA or MRSA germs in hospitals, these like um, antibiotic resistant germs. And um, different countries in Europe have very different approaches to it. For example, the Netherlands are very strict about quarantining and separation and um, disinfection of hands between patients and as long as you're not tested negative for these strains you are kept away from everybody else in the hospital while in germany they don't do that and so germany has much higher case numbers for that and german physicians have their own justifications why the german system is okay and we don't have to adopt it for example to the to the dutch system but mm. still there is like is there a reason behind that though because i know that germany also has like lower money. no but i mean there's also um different countries have different um rates at which they prescribe certain antibiotics so there's actually differences in antibiotic resistances by country yeah depending on how how common it is to, to give out those those antibiotics right i when when i was reading about this topic i just remember that um like the dutch system involves just much more like organizational work like to actually okay. separate these people and do additional testing like somebody comes in and they have i don't know like a stab wound or, or like a serious like cut or something um and then they kept separate <laughs> as uh, until they are tested negative for the strain it's just much more mm. work than ignoring that whole aspect of it and just like putting them in the ward where the people with the bad cuts are um and yeah. then 
risky we need more um, we need no we need more friends who are actual doctor doctors to ask about this yeah. um yeah. i don't know enough about yeah medicine yeah. And, and different situations in different countries to to be an authority <laughs> exactly. it's exactly. kind of terrifying whenever i read about these antibiotic resistance i just i just get paranoid and you know slam my yeah. computer down and run away and hide under <laughs> my covers for a bit I'm, I'm very happy that in our field um bad decisions don't lead to immediate <laughs> death like oh, it's yeah. just like in the worst case um a crop yeah. improvement is just delayed for a couple of years it doesn't mean that you administer a drug that can kill or that you miss something that will cause harm i mean there there are definitely some choices that some people are making that i don't think are going to be great for the world but um yeah, yeah. I, I i remember going through school and people saying oh you get good you get good test scores you should be a doctor i was like oh no like i have you yeah. seen how often I destroy things in the lab? Like, you don't want me near people. This is <laughs> yeah. not... Yeah, It's I'm, better that I'm isolated. <laughs> I'm also very happy that I always worked with plants and never with something that had vertebrates. Um, mm. So, anyway, that's the Semmelweis reflex. A cognitive bias that deters us from adopting new information because we have old information that we like to keep. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun begins. This is where the fun Uns, uns, uns. What did you um, bring us today, Tegan? I saw something via the Global Plant Council on Twitter, um, which leads to an article that was recently published in Trends in Plant Science. Um, so it's kind of a review journal. And it's um, Genomes on Canvas, Artist's Perspective of Evolution, no, on Evolution of Plant-Based Foods. Um, and it's by Vergalvin and Desmet. I hope I said that kind of right. <laughs> it's basically it's the idea that a biologist and a historian have kind of teamed up together um, to look at the evolution of the foods that we eat, but they're doing it by going to um, art to sort of look at how these fruits were portrayed and also how they were present hmm. at different times um, during human history, I guess. Because it's obviously quite hard to find other, you know, evidence of, of these 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 edible plants they got eaten. So they are in the paintings, however. So it's quite nice. Hmm. Um, um, yeah, I just like it because it shows uh, what you can get from this kind of uh, cross-disciplinary interaction. So um, there's a quote in the article um, by Fergawan saying, I'm a biologist by training and he's an art historian um, by training. So we come from two completely different worlds. Um, during a trip a couple of years ago, we were standing in front of a painting and there was a piece of fruit that we didn't immediately recognize. And he asked me what I thought it was. I said I didn't really know and that maybe it was a bad painter. So they kind of saw something <laughs> they didn't know what it was and like, uh, that, that person's just shit. But then they kind of looked into it. And um, because I think, sorry, that was by Desmet. So I think um, the, the person was immediately like, oh yeah, they're, they're a bad painter. But the other person's like, no, no, no. I am an art historian. I know this painter he's actually a really good painter so you know the fruit's not the, the the art's not wrong that fruit is just something that you don't know and then they kind of i like to imagine a little friendly competition of trying to find out who who was right but you know i'm <laughs> i'm making up stories here but yeah it's, it's a nice idea right yeah 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 that's that's a very nice idea and it reminds me of the fruit from the science book that we read in our <laughs> plant book club because mm. there were also the mention of some like forgotten cultivars some things that were fairly common in the past and were eaten quite a lot 
but mm -hmm. for whatever reason, we, like cultivation methods changes, we found something that works better. Um, we stopped eating that. We stopped eating this kind of fruit. We stopped um, growing a kind of grain because, um, yeah, we we found something better. We found something else that we wanted to use instead. And so it's really interesting to not only go for like archaeological evidence for that, but also for sort of cult culture historical culture evidence of culture history or, mm -hmm. um, and like art history. I think that's that's pretty cool. Yeah, and, and, and sort of a similar thing they're talking at the the end of this article about how you might see something in the store and think, oh, that, that must be really a modern thing of breeding, but then you can look in this historical paintings and sort of see the diversity that existed a long time ago and be quite surprised by it. So, yeah, yeah. very charming. Breeding and history is also a good segue now to my first topic, which is, uh, I called it here, to keep an eye out for rebittering squashes. And it's about this idea Wait. that... Um, plants like our cultivars ages ago they used to be quite bitter like uh, squashes potatoes um the wild ancestors they're not really edible they're very bitter and um not very tasty to the point that high quantities of them can actually be toxic and then it took um decades and and um centuries of breeding sometimes even millennia of breeding uh to get the wild ancestor to something that we know today that's very tasty and nutritious um and the problem that we can face now or just a problem that lies within the genes of our cultivars is that the genes that were responsible for the bitter taste and the toxic effect of the wild ancestor, they might still be present in the genome. They are just uh, deactivated. Um, they have sometimes they are broken down so uh, during evolution so far that um, they can't be reactivated. But sometimes they are just sort of dormant and under regular circumstances they are not expressed and no bitter compounds are made but if you grow squashes in your garden next to ornamental squashes that ha didn't have the breeding history of removing the bitter compounds because they were always ornamental they were not meant to be eaten um, then you can have cross-pollination and that might mix the genetic material together in a way that these bitter compounds can return in your edible squash um, and are they is, poisonous or are they just bad yeah. tasting um, they are poisonous in larger quantities and usually it's very hard to poison yourself because it tastes really bad and so you mm. don't eat kilograms of it um, and it's also not something that happens very often but it happens uh, like just by the sheer numbers of people growing squashes in their garden next to ornamental squashes some of them will have that effect and the article says uh, uh, it's a Guardian article um, by, by a guy called james wong who's botany geek on twitter um that if you ever grow a squash in your garden and you're eating it and it tastes weirdly bitter just stop eating it throw it out um and get a new plant for the next season um it's not something uh that you yeah you shouldn't eat them they are not good and probably they have been cross-pollinated from some other ornamental squashes and that can happen in other plants as well so just just be s smart and if something yeah, tastes like unusually good... bitter, don't keep eating it and think, oh, yeah. it's because it, it, it has all the nutrients from my garden and it's not the disgusting thing I bought from a supermarket that's devoid of any flavor. No, like if it tastes bad and tastes bitter, it's probably not good for you. So just don't eat it. Yeah. Also, if it's, if it's really salty, you're not a farming genius. That's fox piss. <laughs> like there are some basic life lessons. And it's... <laughs> <laughs> 
Yeah, I think when it's bitter, <laughs> thrown out is not is not terrible advice for everything. <laughs> yeah, but mm. I like the idea that through crossing, um, oh we can sort yeah, of reactivate the old things. Um, Yoren, when you think of succulents, what do you think? Uh, isn't there like a word that you can use to describe like succulent food? Is that a thing? That's always what I think of. I eat. I think of like greasy chicken wings and spare ribs. Yeah, so it's not. Yeah, juicy would be probably the right. Yeah equivalent there yeah so actually the definition of succulent is the capacity to store water so basically you have a, a specific organ usually and you can store water in it and the volume can like vary with with water storage and normally when we think of succulents apparently yarum thinks of chicken even though he is actually hosting a plant podcast right now um, but also but living mostly vegetarian and eating like chicken once a month when my yeah, mother yeah but i think living it. mostly vegetarian if anything makes you think of chicken more like you just dream of chicken at that point i crave it so much um most of us will think of small succulent plants like the, the kind of cute cacti like friends um that you can put in small pots and are quite beautiful And I just wanted to say that there is now a new type of succulent, which is not one of those, but it is a large woody bamboo species. Um, and it's basically a whole new thing because there's, there's not been description of something like a bamboo, massive woody forest grass that is eaten by pandas that also somehow forms into the, the category of succulent and therefore can... Um, yeah be succulent it can can hold this quantity of water and sort of expand and keep water in it um for its survival hmm. cool uh succulent is another association that i have is the plant daddy podcast uh where they talk about succulents uh from time to time when they talk about how mm. to take care of certain plants and one of them i forgot who of the two is a big fan of succulents and therefore if you are a gardener who likes to grow their own succulents um, check out the Plant Daddy podcast. They have, like, I have no idea about gardening and what they say sounds really smart to me. So I guess they give good tips. So I can recommend it from the point of view <laughs> of somebody who has never kept a plant alive. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's uh, they, they have some cool stories and um, they yeah. go through, like, they have, they have gardening tips for succulents that sound like they sound useful to somebody who likes to grow them. And if you like succulent chicken, there's probably a podcast for that as well, I imagine. <laughs> like, we don't know it. But. Oh, Japanese double fried chicken. That's the best thing in the world. Actually, like, do you remember, <laughs> kind of related, a podcast with chicken? There was once on This American Life, the, there was a woman who could tell when fried chicken was ready based on the sound. So they, they were frying chicken. That, she, that, was like, that blew my mind. <laughs> like, listening to chicken fries. So like... 30 seconds of air just on frying chicken sound <laughs> nice i mean I, there's some during cooking sometimes i can sort of i don't know if it's the looking at it or hearing it or something but without looking like at the thermometer or the time i can tell when something is done by the way it behaves and i imagine listening to the chicken is goes a similar way but yeah unfortunately i don't cook chicken enough to have that special ability would be also a cool superhero power Uh, <laughs> ordinary superhero like can't tell when chicken is perfectly ready yeah. and nothing else just chicken perfectly cooked um anyway so i um from chicken to tobacco i found a story about researchers who boosted tobacco productivity by 27 in the field which is a major increase if we usually talk about in plant breeding about increases in terms of yield 
in the range of percentages like two to three five percent when, when you say yield it's tobacco so you mean biomass just it's like biomass, the mass of the yeah. leaves yeah it's just the, okay. the mass of leaves which doesn't mm -hmm. exactly translate to biomass in corn or wheat or anything um, but i found it quite interesting what they were doing there um you know photosynthesis right you have heard of it yeah it's this mm -hmm. process where Uh, light is gathered and that pushes some electrons around an electron transport chain and then in the end carbon is fixed from car uh, from co2 from the air i mean you you missed a few steps there but yeah that's that's what happens i mean that's i mean i don't think we have more knowledge than that really We had to cut an entire section so that our dear listeners will maintain some sort of belief in our ability as scientists. Um, <laughs> and we didn't completely publicly embarrass ourselves. Yeah, yep, keep um, that in, but edit everything else out. Because what I absolutely knew from the start is that uh, one very important molecule in the electron transport is plastocyanin, which mm. channels from the second complex involved in the electron transport chain to the third complex, namely cytochrome B6F2 photosystem 1. It channels electrons there. The names are not so very important. The important thing is that plastocyanin is sort of a slow electron carrier. It hangs around the photosystems a little bit too long and uh, is therefore not very efficient. And uh, in plants, you only have plastocyanin, but in algae, you have uh, another thing called cytochrome C6. And that's a much faster electron carrier um, that mm. sort of is an, an algae active in the same part, in the same step. And so what they did is that they introduced the cytochrome C6 to Uh, tobacco so that I had a very efficient electron carrying process there so the electrons were moving much faster through the electron transport chain um, mm. and then to sort of also deal with the increased flux into so that, that sort of there was more energy gathered from the sun and so now it, there was more energy that needed to also to be put into fixed carbon, carbon yeah otherwise it would go to waste basically explode well it basically explodes also you get a blockage and then things start yeah. like building up backwards and you get kind of this car crash effect where everything yeah it, everything this can be up. dangerous for the plant right yeah it can heat up it can um just break enzymes and kill the whole thing so just um, like tiny tiny explosions you guys like yeah. you can't see them but the plant is screaming but if you're very quiet you can hear them it goes like <laughs> <laughs> Tell your like ten year old children that today we're gonna learn to listen to the explosions in the plant. <laughs> Shine a torch on the leaf and wait till you hear the bang. And so the other thing that they did they they um increased the expression of a certain enzymes called SBPAs, um which is part of the Calvin Benson cycle. What does that stand for, Yarm? What's what's S B and P? <laughs> You are very mean. I have no idea. Um, this is like, <laughs> to me, as like I worked on Photosystem 1, which is why I immediately know that plastocyanin is involved in channeling <laughs> electrons around Photosystem 1. But everything be behind that is, was for me like downstream processes that I didn't have to <laughs> worry about. Um, for, for you, our listeners, I think it's just important to know that this is an enzyme involved in this carbon fixation cycle. And um, one of the bottlenecks there, one of the things that were... Um, reducing the maximum um, sort of flow that could go through there. And just by adding more of this enzyme, they managed to have the cycle go pretty much in overdrive. Uh, and that led, that, that led to a pretty significant increase. Like they had over 50% so increase in biomass in the greenhouse. Um, but greenhouses always like optimize conditions and so on. But then in the field also 27%. That's pretty it's good. It's huge, yeah. 
But so yeah, basically they just removed two bottlenecks. There was two yeah. processes which previous, like theoretically, uh, presumably, excuse me, previous research had showed that these were parts where there was like the slowest enzymes or there was some sort of like slowdown and they just kind of widened the road at those two locations and, and got an... It sounds amazingly simple, right? I mean, it must have been years and years of research leading up to this and then making these plants, but... Yeah, and also, again, fine-tuning it. Like, I, in in the story about it, it sounds like, yeah, you just, like, drop one of them there and one, another one there, done. Like, I guess they must have, like, fine-tuned expression levels and so on to the point that it actually works. Um, mm -hmm. So pretty impressive. But you have to mention in the story that this doesn't mean that we have crops that grow 27% better in the field. Um, they're now in the process of developing plants, like actual commercial crop plants that have the same modifications and to see if that actually then results in better and bigger fruit or more grain or something like this. Um, because right now they just made like supercharged tobacco, which and then like mm -hmm. model like lab tobacco, not production tobacco that's, uh, that's used by tobacco growers. Uh, but still pretty impressive like it's the, like improving yeah, photosynthesis is one of the like big goals and many people failed at that because it's very hard to do and then managing is pretty cool yeah and as you mentioned like they they grew in the field which is already a huge step up from growing it in the lab and then also they i mean tobacco it's it's not wheat but it's also not arabidopsis so that's also kind of another step up as far as model plants to something that's more crop like um, oh, I have something that is kind of a little bit creepy and a little bit terrifying. I'm going to give you the link. So there's an article in Science um, from Charlotte Hartley, and it's called What's a Tiny Robot Powered by Alcohol? And it just has this really, really tiny little bug that's um, using its two front legs to kind of shimmy itself up a small slope. And this is a tiny little robot. Um, it basically is filled with um, alcohol, methanol in this case and as the methanol kind of evaporates becomes vapor which as we all know alcohol does very readily um there's some um, nickel <laughs> call back <laughs> nickel titanium wires um covered in platinum which help like make this methanol vaporize this then makes heat and there are then wires in the robot's legs that shorten and cool depending on uh, shorten and lengthen depending on the heat so um, hmm. they, they shorten with heating and then they cool and they re-extend again and this um, repeated movement kind of brings the legs in and out which makes it move forward so the tiny little, it's called a row beetle, so a robot beetle, row beetle it's only 88 milligrams um, but it can also, it can lift things that are a couple of times more than its own weight so theoretically there's an idea to to use this hmm. in the future and possibly scale it up yeah. um they put at the bottom that it could be used as artificial pollinators so i thought that was although not directly plant related kind of on theme for us at least uh, yeah yeah no, it's a little cool. bit terrifying it like robots I think are always in this uncanny valley right like there are these amazing machines that could do wondrous things but they're also terrifying i mean i think any of us who watched that black mirror episode with the dogs like there was this Black Mirror it. years ago when there were these, these ro like it looked a little bit like this, these robotic, um, they were called dogs, I think, um, and they were just hell-bent on killing people and they just like kept on going and killing people and ever since then I've been 
Yeah. Much but more nervous about. I always had that feelings when when the uh, Boston Dynamics people presented another video of their robot. Um, they yeah. have now this like small dog-like robot. I think that was the inspiration for the Black that Mirror. That was the, that was directly the inspiration. That's the problem. It the the um, TV producers clearly used that, and then after the Black Mirror episode came out, like a month later, they showed a video. So w what is it? Boston Dynamics. Boston Dynamics is yeah, and I think the robot is called is it called Spot. I think the commercial one, like the small, like gently colored yellow one, it's called Spot. They showed an, they showed like a new development, like a couple of months after the episode, where um, the the aim of the dog was to get through a door, and they had a scientist like holding a hockey stick trying to prevent the dog, and they just showed the dog just kept on going, and they would like push it away with the stick, and it would just come back, and they would push it away, and you know it looks exactly like this terrifying monster in Black Mirror, and it's just doing exactly what I mean. That that is nightmares right there. Yeah, yeah. To ease the nightmares is that the Boston Dynamics they didn't manage yet to put in sort of self pro self directing navigating AI uh. into it. So the they I think went through YouTube now a couple of weeks ago because they delivered sort of the first commercial units to some people to test it one of them was like adam savage adam savage from the mythbusters mm -hmm. um and right now it's a remote controlled robot the crazy thing is that you you just like go forward and then it avoids obstacles on its own it just like goes the path but it can't decide on its own yet to go forward and do these decisions mm -hmm. like the navigation is still human controlled but the micro navigation like going over steps and through doors and uh, upstairs and so on these things are just like, I mean, in also the machine that, and that's it's it's quite terrifying to see it doesn't like, that go feel around. like what it wants you to think like what I can't go forward by myself but I can like very cleverly avoid like a moving object like it wants you to think it can't go forward. I mean, if it can, if it can like leap over a skipping rope, or I don't know what it does. Presumably, it can also it go can forward. Dance. That's a cool video where it dances. Yeah. So what it, its argument is like, I can dance. Watch me dance, but don't worry, I'm not able to go forward. Like I don't believe. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm calling bullshit. <laughs> I mean, you're right. Like it definitely has capabilities that are have very bad potential. Um, and guys, just in case you're thinking that isolation has made me more paranoid, no, I was always as paranoid. <laughs> I don't like true. crows, I don't like velociraptors, I don't like zombies, and I don't like robots. I think those are a, a fair list of our natural enemies to be afraid of. <laughs> yes? <laughs> I mean, also, I would like to point out right now that there are some people who are scared of putting a tiny bit of cloth over their mouths. So, me being afraid of crows... Like, I'm not looking that stupid. Let's talk some more plant science. My, fa my final story today is um, that researchers looked at mummified leaves um, to get a glimpse into the past. Uh, oh, I didn't like this story. <laughs> um, it's a story about the fossilized plants that they dug up. Um, they did some core drilling somewhere. Obviously, New Zealand, I think. Yeah, I think so. Obviously, I forgot... Um, the important details but yeah they did some core drillings i found these mummified leaves and they were in very good condition so they could look at the leaf structures even at the stomata and so on and could mm -hmm. do some molecular measurements stomata are like the tiny little um mouth yeah. holes the air holes in the leaves to let the gases in so they can do 
photosynthesis, take up that carbon dioxide, let out that oxygen. And there are structures that are like microscopic in size. Uh, so you could imagine that they would easily like sort of be broken down if you lose structure. But these were so well preserved that um, even these microscopic structures were maintained. Um, and they figured out from their analysis, something that was ad- uh, up to a debate before, that there was a period um, in the past where the CO2 concentration was at 450 parts per million, which mm-hmm. is higher than what we have today. And slightly higher. Slightly higher. Unfortunately, bit, we're, we're aiming for it, but um, it's still slightly higher. And I guess also, I'm, they don't say it in the BBC article that I read about it, but I guess also there will be like error bars on the measurements that the researchers did and it might touch no, no, no like, this was this was definitely like a high carbon dioxide event. That was not yeah. what I didn't like. But you're you're reading a different source from me, so that's already reassuring. Yeah, um, but the the point is that yes, there there, there were there was a time when CO two was um, higher than what we have today, slightly higher, so in the same ballpark than what we have today. Um, the temperatures were also higher back then, um, so they had I think somewhere I read the number about like five to seven degrees uh, centigrade more than what we have, um, like what was the average pre-industrial. So we're also aiming for that goal. Um, And plants were growing then and apparently they were also sort of, they had an accelerated metabolism so they were able to deal with this higher this big large amount of co2 and they could yeah grow better which is a point that many people make when they say like look it's actually not that bad that we have to rise in co2 in the, in the atmosphere because plants like co2 and that just means the plants will do better um the important thing to know though is that the increase in temperature and co2 um back back when um went over a very long period of time so plants and life had in general time to adapt and go through evolution and adapt to that and actually develop the mechanisms necessary to have a faster metabolism with the higher co2 and to deal with the elevated temperatures and to deal with the fact that the ice caps were melted um that was also the case back uh, then i tried to find the time when it was and i can't find it from skimming the article right now um when uh, this time period was um but anyway so the uh, 23 million 23 years yeah so 23 million years ago we had conditions similar to what we're aiming for right now <laughs> just when you keep on saying aiming for it's like let's go kids we're gonna make it it just sounds true oh, no it's it's breaking my little heart <laughs> you know it's it's terrible that we're going in that direction and also it's it's terrible that we're going in that direction so very fast um back mm. then the increase in temperature and CO2 didn't happen within 100 or 200 years. It happened over like hundreds and thousands of years. Um, so that's why the species were actually able to adapt. Um, so can I can I ask you about this? You saw this on the BBC. Yeah. Um, so they kind of put the caveats into the article that, you know, these... So, so the finding here is that the plants had adaptations, which meant that they could take advantage of the increased carbon dioxide without, like, just dying of desiccation from, like, drying themselves out or succumbing to yeah. other... Like, this is this is one of the big problems with, with um, the global warming we're, we're having now. Yeah. Um, but in your article, they kind of put these caveats saying, hey, by the way, <laughs> this is actually not what we're going to see here because probably... Yeah, yeah. Well, to to quote uh, from the article, there's one of the researchers, Dr. Reichgeld. Um, they say uh, how it plays out is anyone's guess. Cons- like looking at today's events, it's another layer of stress for plants. It might be great for some and horrible for others. So yeah, we mm-hmm. we 
um, in that article they address uh, like we we can't now we can't take like these these fossil findings and now say hey everything's going to be fine plants will just like do their stuff quicker because there's more CO2 um, it's very unlikely that it will happen in such a simplistic way it uh, yeah it will still probably lead to major cat catas uh, catastrophes and die-offs of whole like sections of species Yeah, so just like the reason I said I didn't like this is because I saw it via IFL Science. Um, it's called 23 Million Year Old Fossil Leaf Reveals Earth Might See a Plant Boom as CO2 Rises. And it's been shared by almost 7,000 people. But that seems to be written in a way that is much less honest and aware of the potential issues. So I'm just going to read out a paragraph now. It says atmospheric carbon is currently around 415 parts per million and is expected to reach 450 by around 2040 thanks to human-caused emissions. This means that plant species may begin to behave in the same way that ancient species did in um, Fulbanmar, the place where it was found, potentially indicating that a global greening event is on the horizon. And then it doesn't go into any of the, the caveats. So it's kind of selling this as, hey, look, everything's going to be better and greener and one of the things they found out like in the like they mentioned in the bbc articles like looking back at these stomata that we talked about these tiny openings is that they compared the ones in the ancient leaves to modern leaves and i found that they had a different anatomy back then 23 million years ago that allowed them to take up more carbon dioxide without losing losing a lot of water through vaporization um, which is very important if you have a high temperature and a high carbon dioxide level and This is an evolutionary adaptation. This is not something that plants can just turn on within mm. a couple of decades um, to deal with this rising stress. Uh, so it's unlikely that plants like that at a, at, a, at a large scale will follow the same route. Like maybe there's some of them that have the potential to quickly adapt, but most of them probably won't. Most of them probably won't adapt their stomata structure quickly enough um, which is just one of the things that they need to to adapt and um, to deal with these rising levels of temperature and CO2. So yeah, um, the, the BBC article is much less ent enthusiastic about um, a regreening of the world uh, in, in levels of high CO2. Um, so I recommend reading that. Uh, and it has also some like quotes from researchers involved in the study and so on. So it's... Um, It's a nice read and it has some nice pictures of the mummified um, leaves and uh, some microscopic images of the stomata as well. Cat fact. Um, I mentioned this already on our Twitter feed, but I wanted to kind of bring it up again. There was something, an article in PLOS Computational Biology that came out earlier this year, um, 2020, And it's by um, Veronica Cheplegina. I'm probably saying that wrong, sorry. Um, and colleagues, and it's 10 simple rules for getting started on Twitter as a scientist. So I would recommend this because it's got some nice information about science tweeting um, from kind of basic things of like, don't be a jerk, kind of included there. Um, but also some information about kind of how you can can do your basic tweeting and, and the rules and the politeness and, and you know, Anyway, um, but I really recommend it because of figure one, um, which is a picture of her cat sitting on some scientific papers. And she says, pictures that someone might put, or, or figure one caption, sorry, not she. The, the caption for figure one is, 
pictures that someone might post on Twitter to convey they are reading papers and like cats. And it's a picture of a cat sitting on papers. And then possible relevant hashtags include hashtag ac- academics with cats, hashtag cataday, hashtag ECR chat. And then in brackets, chat as in conversation, not cat as in, in French. And I found that very funny. And then I went and followed her on Twitter. Um, yeah. Sorry, follow. Yeah. Yeah, that that was very very good. One of my favorite captions of all time, I think, for a, um, a figure in a scientific paper. <laughs> yeah, so and good. also um, generally following Veronica on Twitter, she also posts images of her cats on Twitter. Apart from getting them into publications, when I when I at tweeted her, she showed me another publication that she had also got her cat into one of the figures, um, standing next to an image of some tigers, no less. So very bold and brave. <laughs> Um, and then today on her Twitter feed, I saw a retweet from at the Sean Brewster, which was talking about a um, online learning Zoom class where the professor casually mentioned that she had a cat. And one of the students wrote in the questions for um, the Zoom show cat. <laughs> <laughs> and it wasn't even like show cat question mark or can you please show your cat? It was just like show cat. <laughs> which I think is beautiful. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think Zoom meetings are so much better when cats are involved. Um, mm. On either, either side, like either like on my side of the camera or like if somebody else brings in their cat, it's just so much better. Um, one of my team members has adopted two cats during quarantine and I am not angry about it. It is great. <laughs> it's one of the best times to do that because you want to be home and train them and like have them be like was it like imprint them on you so that uh-huh. they they get severe stockholm and love you oh my god and yeah. you want to be home for that so yeah it's the perfect time for for that if mm. i wouldn't have already like a kid and two cats i would have probably like if the kid wouldn't be there i probably would have had four cats by now um <laughs> I mean, theoretically, your wife has two cats, so it's only fair that you get two cats as well. <laughs> yeah. I'm not saying like, that technically. It's, it's not happening, period. I'm just mean, uh, like, the, the kid sort of postpones the acquisition of more cats by a little bit. Um, yeah, that's fair. <laughs> Kids cost money, I hear. <laughs> yeah, and it's also time and everything. As I said, like, you want to imprint the cats, and if you are imprinting a child, it's uh, hard to also imprint the cats at the same time because the child should also get stuck home. Oh my goodness, yeah. <laughs> and with that delightful um, glimpse into Yarm's parenting, I think we should um, finish up for today. Yes. Um, if you liked our show and you want to get in touch with us and yell at us for showing our cats and or uh, tolling us off about the things that we might have gotten wrong, you can find us on Twitter, which is at Plants Pets, where you can usually talk to me. On Instagram and Facebook, you can talk to me. That's at Plants and Pipettes. We have a website, uh, plantsandpipettes.com, where we publish uh, two articles per week. And we had two very interesting articles uh, this week. We started um, with an article about phosphorylation and its role in, um, and it's like a freshly discovered role in the regulation of growth and stress um, through like a phosphorylation cascade and with like some very clever interaction of, of proteins there. I quite enjoyed reading that. And then we had an opinion piece, which we don't do, do so often, which was Yoram discussing his thoughts on vertical farming, which you might have already heard came up last time in yeah. last week's podcast. So I, I wrote him up a little bit neater than mm-hmm. the stuff that I said on the air. 
But yeah. slight, slight structuring to our normal ramblings, which, you know. <laughs> and some more sources. So, um, yeah. Um, yeah, so if you want to read... Isn't it because I just, like, like, Yoram recently complained that when I, like, went through his thesis on Reddit, I just put ref after each sentence. <laughs> like, put a reference, put a reference, put a reference. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I'm really pro over-referencing things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, and it's, it's, it's good. Like, you want to clearly state where you got your information from. It's just so much more work. Like, if you would have just said, like, put a comma there, I'm fine. Like, it's one keystroke, literally. Um, like, <laughs> writing a ref, it means first, like, remembering what I wrote there and what I meant and yeah. then finding a place that can back up my, my ramblings. Um, Surely that's the point of, like, editing your friend's thesis is to make that they then have to do more work than how much editing work you did, like, to re-put the burden of work back on them. Um, anyway, um, so if Sorry. you check out plantsandprepares.com and read our articles. You uh, can also find our podcast, as you probably already know, on your favorite non-Spotify podcatcher. But we would really like if you could rate and review us on any of the apps that you use. Um, you can also hurl abuse at us as long as it's kind of kind, like don't come for us and our families. Um, but, you know, let us know what we did wrong and what we should improve. We, we always like to hear from you. If you want to support this show, you can find more information uh, about it on plantsandprepareds.com slash support. And the opening and closing music is Caravana by Philip Cross. Until next week, guys. Bye.